0: Well, welcome back. I'm Sean Noble. This
1: is I'm Chris Clements.
0: Let him speak for himself for light beer and dark money, or light beer, dark money. We haven't figured out whether we're going to do the and yet, right? Yeah. The, the, the website's light, your, light beer, dark money, uh, light beer, and dark money. I don't know. It could uh, go like either way. I like light beer, dark money. Light beer, dark money? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, well, today's guest is a phenomenal individual who just has some serious knowledge you've known him a while why don't you give us a little
1: yeah Jeff is a personal friend a person who I met years ago um, through Robert Vera who encouraged us to meet and, and Jeff and I had a personal friend by the name of Dave Sitton who was the rugby coach for the University of Arizona for 36 years tremendous leader and um, Dave passed away in 19 th- is 2013 and then jeff and i met shortly thereafter and he's a leadership and history instructor at the leadership and freedom center in in gettysburg pennsylvania where he teaches leadership lessons learned from the battle and forging uh, trusted teams and leaders Uh, he's also founder of heirs of the republic educational foundation a 501 c3 organization to secure dedicated to securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity He previously served as director and ambassador for the Navy SEAL Foundation. In fact, Jeff invented the combat side stroke that is used by the Navy SEALs today to traverse through whatever conditions they find out in the open open water. It's amazing. So he's a dedicated historian, uh, specifically a historian of America's founding. He's a constitutional scholar. Um, he not only, under, not only understands the Constitution, you know, the, base of the basis of the Constitution, but he, he can recite each article and, and tell you exactly why those articles were written the way they were written and why. So he's, he's just a tremendous friend, uh, patriot, and, uh, and we're just, I'm just happy to have him as one of our first guests.
0: Yeah, it'll be a far, wide-ranging discussion, so enjoy it well welcome to light beer dark money another episode and uh chris do you want to introduce our guests
1: yeah we have with us uh jeffrey utch who um is I, I believe the correct term is chairman of, of Heirs of the Republic.
2: Yes. Yep. Founder Chairman, Founder, Heirs, chairman, of, the heirs of the Republic nonprofit.
1: Mm-hmm. Which uh does some really interesting uh, educational work in um just get the mic. Up. Great. Does so, it does some really interesting educational work across our state and but also Jeff is a uh trainer to the finest in um, America, the Navy SEALs. And we're going to get him talking about a lot of the great work that he's done, both on, on the constitutional conservative education side, but also the advent of the SEAL sidestroke, <laughs> which okay. we, we would like to hear more about how that came about. How it transpired. And, and how right? it transpired and, and where in the world he would come up with such a thing. <laughs> but we're just happy that you're here. I, I met Jeff several years ago through our previous guest, Robert Vera. And who let me know that Jeff and I had a um, a common good friend by the name of Dave Sitton. Right. And Dave and wanted us to get together for years and years. Years and years. And unfortunately, Dave passed away in 2013. Yeah, And it took that uh, for us to get together. And our first meeting was at Rincon Market down in Tucson. Yes, it and was. We, and we immediately Wonderful found point. out that we had a lot in common, including reminiscing by our dear friend Dave. Yeah. So God bless him. Um, Well, Dave
2: helped me out with radio. You know, the first time I stepped up to a microphone was on the radio with Dave Sitton. And I had done a lot of public speaking at that time, you know, taught the SEALs. But when I looked at the microphone, I just, it was like, there's nobody to, you know, we're all kind of on one side. And he was like, what do you think about that, Jeff? And I was like, (laughs) it just kind of froze for a minute. It is a different skill set. Sure. You know, and Dave was wonderful at that. But but the thing about Dave, and he was a rugby coach for thirty years for the, 36 University, years of the University of Arizona. Hall wow. of Famer. What a wonderful man. You know, I think he struggled with finances at the end of his life, but that's not what was important to him. His priority was on people. He cared about developing young men. And he put his time where his his passion was. And um, what a great example to me. But one of the things he did for me is to just encourage say oh you didn't do that bad you did pretty good you know you can do better at this you know come on you go out there and do so he really was a coach in that he knew the right time to come down on you a little bit and say okay you you know we got to shape but he also knew when to praise and encourage and i think that's a it it, being a coach is kind of like driving in traffic You know, you you got to watch, maybe this driver's a little crazier than this one. But he recognized individuals and knew how to motivate the individual. Sure. And I learned that from him. You know, I'm not saying I'm good at it, but he helped me to be more comfortable on the radio uh, over the years, which now I've done a lot of. I'm not saying I'm good at it, but at least (laughs) I don't freeze mostly uh, when being on there. So.
1: He had a radio show on the weekends up until when he passed he away he did and he had me on american warrior times. American yeah. warrior and uh it was just all focused on our our fighting men and women of, yeah. of the military and he would he had me on for some reason a couple times
2: well he he just supported them and uh you know wanted what was best you know and what a great example. The beach, I'll, you know, every time I think of Save, I think of uh, Dave Sitton, I think of the Beach Boys because that was his era. <laughs> that was his generation. But it just kind of shows you what impacts individuals can have on other people's lives. Yeah. And although he's gone, he's had a great impact
1: on our life. Yeah.
2: And uh, has helped teach us skills that you never you never know who will impact because of him.
1: Yeah. Whenever I public speak or get prepared for some sort of speaking engagement, i I've got Dave sitting ro- <laughs> in my head in terms of the way he would just he he literally would show up. He was an MC too. Oh yeah, and yeah. he would literally show up to an event, pretty much ask anyone like, "What am I doing? What, what's going on? Who are the, who are the people I'm I'm supposed to be announcing?" Write them down on a piece of paper, go up to the podium, and nail it. Well, he would That's but, impressive,
2: but it wasn't because he was lazy. Yeah, it wasn't because he prepared last minute. He was so busy. He did. I mean, he had this radio show and he had this workout and he had, you know, these kids to be. And so he filled his time. If he was guilty of anything, it was no downtime because if he had the downtime, he'd go crazy. I mean, he'd just start spinning around and, you know, so great example there. But what a talent, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, Jeff, tell us a little bit about your background and and then we can dive into some of the the more uh, deeper – subjects that I know that you've got a lot of expertise on. Sure.
2: Well, uh, born in Washington, D.C., so every time I fill something out, what state you were born <laughs> on, I wasn't born in a state, you know. <laughs> Are you an alien? No, Washington, D.C. Um, raised in Chesterfield County, Virginia, which is just south and west of Richmond, uh, the capital of Virginia. And, um, you know, I had a great childhood, raised in a bricked-over hunting cabin with an outhouse to start right on the James River. Um, And so a lot of history around my house. You know, uh, Bologna Arsenal was near where I was raised, which is where the Confederacy made their cannons. They had the the Union prison camp for the officers of the uh, Union Army was just down the river. We'd metal detect and, you know, find all sorts of Civil War stuff. Uh, We lived right where Thomas Jefferson, you know, rode his horse across the James River to get away from the Redcoats uh, when they were coming into Virginia. And he was governor right near where um, Patrick Henry lived when he was governor. And so a lot of history, really loved from a young age, American history, Civil War primarily, uh, but it got me really interested in you know, just going back. Like my, my primary concern was, what, was the, what were the causes of the Civil War and who was right? and it because in the south at that time we didn't play cowboys and indians we played rebels against the yankees and in virginia in the early 70s that ages me i know but um you know we didn't we didn't play that we played rebels and yankees but my mom and dad were both from pennsylvania and gettysburgs where my mom's from so we'd go up and run Pickett's Charge and play with my uh, Yankee uh, cousins. And they would say, well, it's a good thing we beat you rebels. And I was like, that's not what I'm hearing down there. And, uh, <laughs> Wait, as, do you won? <laughs> yeah. As politically correct, incorrect as that seems at the time, that's what it was. And uh, so at a young age, I was like, well, both, both sides can't be right. Let's look into this a little bit more. And so I had a lifelong discovery process of, you know, not only who was right and wrong, but what caused it. You know, where were these genuine feelings? You know, why did it take the total subjugation of the South? Did they really believe in slavery that much? You know, what what happened here? And because of that, it took me back to the antebellum period and then, you know, Daniel Webster and Joseph Story and John Marshall, um, all their writings about the Constitution and what it meant, but also to... Um, you know, John Taylor of Caroline in Virginia, St. George Tucker, his commentaries on the Constitution, you know, and different perspectives and perceptions of the Constitution. And back to the original documents, Madison's notes on the Constitution, um, Thomas Jefferson's writings, all those kind of things. It, but it was all based originally on trying to figure out where was the flaw? Where was the flaw that took us down a path to being willing to kill each other? You know, what happened there? And, um, and just really interesting, I think, you know, our American history, as David McCullough, one of our great authors in this nation said, our shared American history is our greatest national treasure. And why is that? So very briefly, I'm going down a rabbit hole a no, little it, bit. This is a but, fantastic subject. Here. Well, the reason is that is I kind of use, and I talked about this at uh, the Freedom Expo, That we just had not too long ago our eighth annual um but is you know each of us today um are made up of what our experiences have made us so you know i've gone through certain things uh you guys have gone through certain things that make you who you are and if one day we were to wake up and forget everything you know what was it like to lose all that money what was it like to go through that really hard training and fail. What was it like to get dumped by my first girlfriend? You know what was it like um, to make some mistakes in the painful lessons um, and gain perspective? You know, I, I, you know, we all have those stories. You know, if we woke up again, we would be, we wouldn't know who we were. We wouldn't know what works and what doesn't. We wouldn't know what we've learned. Or and and if we were to rely on other people. If we were to rely on somebody that that maybe saw us on our worst day, it was like, Jeff, you were a loser. I mean, you were a jerk. You just, you know, you didn't give that guy any consideration at all. you know, and I'd be, man, maybe I was a loser. Maybe I wasn't. Or maybe you're listening to your best friends like, well, you had some bad days, but overall, you've progressed at least a little bit, okay? The same with our history if we cancel it out and don't teach it and judge ourselves by our worst days and don't recognize the growth that we've had the progression then we can go back and say man we're losers you know we are we're idiots but if we get the proper perspective and see individually how far we've come and hopefully we have and learn those things but nations act like individuals and we need to learn from that that's why dave mccullough said that's our greatest national treasure because it's what who it, it's what makes us who we are, right just like our individual uh, lessons in history do. Um, so that's a little bit about my background. I swam as a kid, hunted, trapped, uh, came out to University of Arizona on a swimming scholarship, uh, trained for four Olympic trials in swimming, made three, went to two, was on the. US national team between Olympics, uh, missed you know failed miserably at making the team, which I thought I should have Um, but, um, got an engineering degree, aerospace engineering, didn't use that much, went into real estate. And, um, then at the end of my swimming career, I got into open water professional marathon swimming, which is anywhere from 15 to 50 miles open water. Um, and so I've done some of that and then taught swimming around the country to various groups and ran into some seals. And long story short, I started doing pro bono work with them at the end of 1994, and uh, been doing it, and then did it pro bono for three years, and then finally they said, "We want you to go through some of the training we do," and then I set up some courses for them in 1997, and then they eventually started paying me, which is the wife finally was like, "Okay, now I support you going if you're <laughs> yeah. going to get, you know, if you're going to get paid doing that." So I'm not a SEAL, never been in the military. Uh, you know, it's an honor to be able to train those guys and and just rubbing shoulders with some of the greatest people on earth. <clears throat> um, it's just been a very a big blessing in my life.
0: What, um, so, uh, so many different paths we could go. <clears throat> you gave us all kinds of launching points. Uh, but let's go back to, you, you know, you, you studied the Civil War. That was your kind of introduction, I guess, because of where you lived um, to American history. What parallels, if any, do you see today... Versus what you know about, you know, leading up to the Civil War.
2: Well, there's a lot. And, and a lot of it starts on common ground. I mean, what brought our country together was a changing of the Americ the colonial mindset, which became the American mindset. So John Adams said the, the real revolution didn't start when the bullets started flying. The real revolution happened in the hearts and minds of the people. 15 years before in a transition from a colonial to american mindset so they went from being willing to be subject to a king to be willing to have foreign uh soldiers on their soil policing them to have governors arbitrarily appointed to to having semi-local authority with their legislatures um to having um some input on trade to having little input on war and peace Um, so willing to, you know, even though they had benign neglect and a lot of freedoms, they were still willing to be subservient to the, you know, to, in the end, to the mother country. But as they started to get more enlightened, you know, and John Adams called James Otis, the, um, founder of the revolution. And I do a lot of teaching with local police officers to, to, to teach them, that you know, the real founding of the country, although many people think it's no taxation without representation, really had to do with local police uh, departments because James Otis was an attorney and in uh, 1765, he basically sued, you know, wanted to sue uh, the British government and for having writs of assistance, which was the Redcoats could come in and search, not just your building, but whole blocks for no warrant no reason and not searching for any particular thing and james oda's like this is against the rights of englishmen and um you know it's wrong we can police ourselves thank you we don't need that help if something's wrong we'll take care of it um and that kind of sparked you know just kind of a transition and, and what happened is the colonial mindset eventually grew to the american mindset that no we're big boys we're not children we can police ourselves We want to have a say in what we're taxed on. We want to have a say on where that's going. We want to elect our own governors. We don't want you to arbitrarily take away our legislative branch. (laughs) We can judge people who have done wrongs here. They don't need to go to England. We want to be control of our own trade. You know, all these things went into the American mindset. And, and it started in Virginia and Boston and then spread throughout. And it, and it wasn't a necessarily a super majority of Americans, but it was certainly a plurality that got this way and others followed. And so we had at the beginning a vision of what were our first principles and where do we want to go. You know, and, and this is very important to teach about priority of principles you know, what were America's priority of principles? And of course, we can learn that very quickly from Patrick Henry's liberty or death speech. You know, America's first principle was freedom, liberty. Give me liberty or give me death, okay? Do the right thing, whatever happens, even if it's death, it's worth it. And Patrick Henry almost unilaterally changed the Virginia legislature's mind on that when they said, we have no money, we have no you know, arms, we have no organization, we got nothing. And he came back and said, look, when are we going to be stronger? When are you going to stand on principle? And so he unified them in vision. Okay, so we came together with this universal vision that then uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote out in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence the following year. You know, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and so forth. That became the American creed. Okay. And then, so that was the why we're doing all this. And then the how to keep it was the constitution, how we're going to govern ourselves. So we had this uniform vision at the time, but what happened, we started splitting apart because we lost that vision. So this is a long answer to how are we today compared to the civil war? Well, the the best analogy I have is you know, when the first parties started to emerge under George Washington's administration, you had to split between Hamilton and Jefferson on can there be a bank of the United States? And, you know, Hamilton said, where the power's implied, you can do it. And Jefferson was like, no, no, if I don't see the express authority in that constitution, we're not doing it. And so the party system started and, but the interesting thing was they still wanted to get to the same destination. So it's kind of like, okay, we're in Phoenix. We want to go back to Virginia, you know, Washington D.C. So we might have an argument. No, I want to go the northern route. No, you want to make sure there's no snow and go to the south. But we still have the same destination, and they had that common vision of what they thought America should be. Same thing between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. The, the you know arguing should they ratify the Constitution. One thought there was too much power in the federal government. And one thought there you know it was about right, you know, the Goldilocks thing, just in the middle, just right. they They had those arguments of how to get there. But by the time the Civil War came, the vision wasn't the same. So it wasn't a matter of arguing about you know where we're going, but you know, it was an argument about we're going to Maine, and I want to go to Florida <laughs> right, okay, yeah. And so, So there's so many similarities on the antebellum or pre-Civil War era that we're in right now. Because as a nation, we used to know, understand, and live the American creed, which is in the second paragraph. We used to all believe, and I think we still do, that all men are created equal. But we used to understand what that meant, okay? It doesn't mean we all look the same or have the same talents, but that we're the same in God's eyes, And it really is the Martin Luther King, not judged by the color of your skin, but the content of your character, that God God loves us all equally, he's no respecter of persons, and that we are all cherished sons and daughters of him, okay? That we have unalienable rights, okay? That these rights are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We all used to know and understand what that meant, okay? And the pursuit of happiness used to include private property. Jefferson wrote it, Locke wrote it, it was understood to mean that. Okay, but we don't agree with unalienable rights or where they've come from anymore. Okay, that to secure, now this is the biggest one, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Okay, so we differ now of the proper role of government. And I used to have a lot of talks with Dave Sitton on this, that the biggest question of our era is what is the proper role of government? We've gone through different eras of where we thought this is the, you know, main, uh, question of our era, like at the beginning, should we break with the mother country? How are we going to govern ourselves, etc.? cetera? But what is the proper role of government? We've forgotten it, but the founders understood it, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Okay, but when you hear governors speak today, when you hear our governor in Arizona and almost every other governor in the nation— the President of the United States, or any leader, what do they say their first priority is? My first priority of being governor is to keep you safe. safe. No, it's not. No, it's not. Was Patrick Henry saying, "Mom, I'm up here to say, give me safety.
0: <laughs> right.
2: You know? They would have never fired a shot. Yeah. The first principle of America is liberty. And freedom, now, there are times for emergency powers. There are times for these other things. But if the priority is not liberty, then we become like every other nation, and we've lost our birthright. <laughs> so, yeah. so the vision is different now, okay? So that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. There's a big split on what is the proper role of government. One believes, and if we want to get into conservatism at all, at all, this is the main difference between conservatism and leftist ideology, is that conservatism, and I've got lists of things of what conservatism means, okay? But if you want one sentence that sums up conservatism, it is that sentence, okay? That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men that if you can keep that in mind when you pass a law, when you do anything you do, and I'm not saying, look, you know, uh, that priorities don't change. It's like when I got to take my kid to school, I drop my work, you know, and I take her to school. That's my priority at the time. But then I'm going to go back, you know, and do something else. There are times when that may shift, but overall that's got to be the priority. Um, Deriving their just powers by the consent of the governed. So right now... Those on the left do not believe that the proper role of government is to protect unalienable rights. They believe that it is to uh, ensure social justice, and instead of being a referee on the court, they are, they are a player. Their hand is on the weight of the scale. And so they become more involved and want to create equity. But any society that has equal outcome is not a free society.
0: Right. It's impossible
1: to
2: be free. It's impossible to be free. So we do not have well, the well, same but vision. Goes,
1: but it goes back also to what you were saying before, which was a radical proposition in history. And that yes. uh, the most <laughs> radical thing that I believe the the founders did was forthrightly and properly maintain that our rights come from God. Yes. They are well, not I- instituted. Uh, they are not given to us by a government. That's right. That actually... We are born with them. Right. They are part of who we are, and that we are actually, you know, instituting government to secure what we already know to be true.
2: Right. We're giving yeah. up part of what we, you know, part of what somebody would say freedom, you know. So this is more controlled liberty in and, order to maintain more.
1: But that was that was a radical proposition. Well, at that, makes well, that me, time, nobody had actually firmly oh, said it. Like right. Jefferson, and,
0: it, and it and it makes me wonder. Um, if it was so radical that it may maybe it can't last because we have people who just their natural instinct is to say give me give me give me or protect me protect me protect me if we well because we've let down our guard in the sense that, that you know I, I I've gone back to this before it, Reagan's final speech from the oval office warning Americans that freedom is fragile and you know, if we don't teach it, it's, we're going to lose it. Um, well, and you and can goes, see the fruits of that right now. No question. I mean, it, it, it just it wasn't that long ago. It just, it's, it's crazy. Well, uh,
2: you know, so I don't think the left believes in uh, the proper role of government or where they gain their powers from, you know, deriving their just powers by the consent of the governed, that the people are sovereign. Um, Jefferson wrote a lot about, no, the government is not the arbiter of their own power. You're not. You know, this is why we have federalism. It's why we have states. It's why we have the people. And you can only delegate the power that you as a person have. You can't delegate something which you don't have the right to delegate. So a government of limited powers means that even if the majority of the people take over, they can only do a certain amount of things. (laughs) Okay, it's limited government because inherently in natural law, I can't delegate to somebody else the right to go steal somebody else's car. So if I can't natural law wise say, okay, I'm giving you the authority to go over here and do that, then how can we delegate that to government? Right. So we, you know, so there's a lot of splits there. One of the things that irked me greatly under the Trump administration that I tried to get my voice heard is I never heard the question answered from that administration because the left used it to pound on him and his administration when was america ever great you know um, you know make america great again oh that's a white racist you know these kind of things and there was never a good answer you know and they just go okay when was it great when we had jim crow laws you know when we had segregation when we had slavery no The easy answer is just go to the declaration. We were great from our inception because of the ideals that we hold to and have made progress to, that, you know, no other nation in the history of the world were the first ones that ever taught that we believed all men were created equal. At the time, England was the freest and most powerful nation on earth, the freest, and they didn't believe all men were created right. equal. <laughs> you had the lords and the, and the lower downs and, and this. They didn't believe it, and nobody else did either. You know, you had the writings a lot, but Jefferson put them together. But no country ever espoused that. They didn't think that um, there were unalienable rights. I mean, Parliament in 1765 put out the Declaratory Act that said, we are sovereign over you, the colonists, in all cases whatsoever, That's where the sovereignty lied. You know, the judicial branches there were to perpetuate the regime, not to protect people's liberties. Um, And the proper role of government wasn't to protect individual rights. It was to perpetuate the regime. And so so we were the first so easily answered. But I never heard anybody talk about that. Not only were we great, we made those ideals enabled the world— to become greater, you know, I mean, we can get into slavery issues. We can get into all this. I mean, you know, you go back and, and you have these, you know, pseudo-historians that point to America as, you know, we had slavery. Well, everybody had slavery.
1: But, know, slavery was not a, a singular force of American history.
2: Sla- no, it was everywhere. The, the
1: slave yeah, trade yeah. was practiced everywhere across the globe.
2: But if you look at your history, the ending of slavery started in America in the colonies, with the Quakers, and with in William England. Wilberforce. And, really. and in England. In England. But, but it went back and forth. I mean, you, you, one could argue it really started in the colonies, with the Quakers and some of their writers. I forget the guy's name, but he was a French immigrant that just started hammering on slavery in the mid to early 1700s. And I've got his book. It's a biography on him. And, uh, and he really started the spark that Wilberforce took and started to run with. Um, so it's really about perspective. Um, you know, if we're going to start throwing out and judging people from our standards today,
0: (laughs) you know, with yesterday, you might as well just, you know, well that, and that's the thing that is disappointing. I was going to say infuriating, but it's really more disappointing is that we have so much of a call for canceling our history and taking important events out of curriculum. And, you know, those types of things without any understanding that this, you know, we, yes, the declaration declaration of independence was not something that we were living at the time. It was a, it was a document that was
2: set the ideal.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it was the, you know, this is what we're going to aspire to is it, it was an aspirational document. Have we gotten there? Not yet, but we're a heck of a lot further down the road than we were in That's 1776 right. and we lead the way in the world. I mean, there's just no question that that the, the United States remains the greatest nation on earth because it was, you know, born of these ideals. And the you know, my fear is that we have too many people forgetting what those ideals are and what they
1: mean, and it will. Well, I don't send think us it's just the about them forgetting. I think we have people within the political construct who don't believe them. For sure. the same reason why it was so radical to to declare in in 1776 that that human rights are god-given, that they are divine. If if you don't have any sort of understanding of what that means, then you well, then you're going to write them off as sure. write that entire section of the declaration off as, as a pipe dream. Well, well yeah. I
0: mean, part of the problem is that if you don't believe that there's a god, then what what does it all mean? You know, yeah. what, what is the? It's, just, so that's it's a that, power
2: play yeah. at that point, yeah. and it, it can be. But you know, and it doesn't mean you can't be a very good moral atheist or non believer. But as as Washington said in his farewell address, you know that uh, you know this is a nation that you know is founded on moral principles, and our documents are good. You know, if it's a moral people, and if we lose that. <laughs> then, you know, government's going to have to intervene more to control more. Um, but it's, it's part of the reason I do what I do in teaching. Um, because, you know, I, I study about an hour a day, and I have since I was 15 years old. Um, and I don't – I do read books written by other historians, but most of what I read is original documents. Um, and in the early 2000s, you know, I was watching Fox News and CNN. And at that point, I was still pretty naive, and, um, but I, but at that point in my life, I'd still read a lot, you know, and I'm not a, a, you know, PhD historian or anything, but I just, I'm, my passion is history. So I see these experts on one of the news stations and they're commenting about a letter that Jefferson wrote to Madison and their disagreements and, and the guy opined on that and he was just totally wrong. I mean, just absolutely manipulated what the real document said. Cause I've read it. I mean, recently. I'm like, no, that's not what he said. It's not what he meant. It's not even in the same context. And this is a PhD that is supposed to be the gospel, you know, coming out. And at that point, it was like, I got to start teaching, you know, and this is like 2002 or 2003 or whatever. And so it's one of the impetus. There's others, uh, military based and working with the Navy guys, but um, that has to do with look, if they're fighting for our liberties abroad, and I'm not with them, you know, because I was with that particular team that got Osama bin Laden when 9/11 happened, and I was the only guy that wasn't prepared to go down range and do what was most important. So I had a pity party and you know, feeling sorry for myself and all this. But my bottom line was: look, if they're doing that to protect our liberties abroad, if we lose it at home, what good is it? Right. It doesn't right. do us any good. And then after hearing these guys misleading people purposely. And, and even in the recent, you know, the impeachment hearings and all these things, to hear these professors that are supposed to be the top of the line experts, just either, you know, either completely ignorant, which I can't believe that, you know, or misleading and lying about what the precedent is. And there, there's some room for interpretation on how your perspective is, but then there's just outright manipulation of data. Right. And that happens all too often. And, uh, so one of my goals is try to teach correct principles. People will better govern themselves to try to teach true history and, and they'll understand it. And, and quite frankly, that's why I get in trouble on both sides many times, because I'll call out both sides uh, for what I think is you know, stepping outside their bounds. Um, but I think it's, it's something that we need to teach. I don't think it's being taught. Um, when I teach the American creed, which is the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, you know how many people really know what that is when you say the American creed? Something that everybody used to believe. So at this time in our history, you know, um, are there comparisons? Yes, there are. But there's also comparisons of after the Civil War so, and, and, and things that go on. So after the Civil War, the Confederate soldiers were mostly disenfranchised till later. So they lost the vote. Now, what happened when they lost the vote? They lost their voice. And so all of a sudden, nefarious terrorist organizations were started. One of them, the Ku Klux Klan, okay, and other things to intimidate by violence. Okay, when we took actions in the early 2000s in Iraq... To disenfranchise the Sunnis and to disband the military and not pay them anymore and do the—we're doing almost exactly what happened to the Confederate soldier. Now, you can say they're wrong, they're evil, whatever, but you need to look at history of what's going right. to
0: happen. Right.
2: Okay? This is what happens. It's not just white men who are disenfranchised. Any group that feels disenfranchised, once they felt powered, empowered and lost it without feeling they have a voice, this is what's going to happen. And what I fear in our current state is whether you believe there was election fraud or not, doesn't matter, okay? If you believe there was election fraud or not, or if it actually happened or not, if somebody feels disenfranchised (laughs) and that an investigation isn't ongoing to vigorously pursue and prove one way or the other, like in Arizona, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors trying to fight to keep the machines away i mean that you know that that is the stupidest thing i've ever heard because when people feel disenfranchised historically after they've had feeling like they were franchised what happens January Violence. 6th. <laughs> well worse than that yeah i mean you know it's you know so this is you know it's as a historian, you just kind of look at these things. I wish I could have advised back in the Iraq days, guys. This is what's going to happen if you do this. I'm not saying you've got to do this, that, or the other, but you've got to either let it down, you know, slowly, or figure out a different path. I mean, a, a parachuter gets from A to Z and lives, you know. So it's not it's not the distance traveled; it's the rate of descent. Right, right. So there's a lot we can learn from this stuff.
0: Yeah, and I the the election fraud thing—it is silly to me that that there's been such a a fight over doing the audit. Um, I don't <laughs> think that there was widespread fraud in Maricopa County, and the reason is because is pretty fundamental. The county recorder, a Democrat, lost by less than five thousand votes. You know, Biden won Maricopa County by more than ten thousand votes. So. If he stole it for Biden, why the heck didn't he steal it for himself? You know, I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. So that's just a fundamental thing. But but yeah, are there things that need to be fixed? Absolutely. But you're right about the it's the perception that and there are a lot of challenge, a lot of people who played into the, you know, the fraud argument. Um, I mean, clearly the Democrats have, you know, we know what happened in the 60s with uh, uh John F Kennedy's father Joe sure. Kennedy you know in Illinois sure. um well in the fraud but, thing let
2: me comment i mean i think and i don't know what the fraud level was but what i do know in many states the standards to vote were lowered and the opportunity to cheat was heightened
1: <laughs> you know yeah.
2: any time you've got that happening uh there's a problem
0: well and it's and it and it may not be even that was fraud as much as it was irregularities in the sense that the state legislature had passed, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to stop counting ballots seven o'clock on election day or, or stop collecting ballots. And then the secretary of state, because of unilaterally says, well, no, we're going to open it up for nine more days. Well, that, that, that just, that's changing the structure of the rules to favor one time, one side. And, um, it, it, it's not necessarily fraud as much as it is. It's, it's changing the game. It it's it's the it's field.
2: basically yeah. I mean it's it's um, it, well, it is legislating bodies. from the bench in other areas. I mean, and part of the reason that we we are okay with this now is that our legislators and legislatures have become patsies. Yeah. Okay. So let me let me comment on this. I mean, most everybody's heard co-equal branches of government. That we have co-equal branches of government. Okay that's horse manure. The legislative branch was always supposed to be the most powerful as it is the closest to the people. It has, you know, if you read the constitution, it's article one and it's article one for a reason. And if you look at section eight, you know, depending on which scholar you talk to, it could have anywhere from 15 to 28 powers delegated to the legislative branch. You go into the second article, that's supposed to be the second most powerful, the executive branch. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, four to six or seven powers delegated to the president or executive branch in general. And the, the weakest of all is the, the uh, judicial branch. And if you don't believe me, just go read the Federalist Paper number 78 where Hamilton says, you know, why are you scared of this, the judicial branch? It has no force or, you know, of arms and, and you know, the people. It, 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 it's, we've got to trust it in order to do anything. And so the legislative branch has abdicated its power and authority to the executive and judicial branches. And so in Arizona, I mean, look, if this COVID thing would have happened 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the people would not have stood for a governor. I mean, for a couple weeks or a couple months, they would have said, okay, you know, the governor has power to be able to do this. But a year without the people being represented, so, I mean, think about this. Yeah. Based on precedent now, on what a supposedly conservative governor, I hope I can go here, okay, but this is the problem with leaders not understanding their roles, not understanding the Constitution, and not understanding that the precedents they set could be abused in the future. So unless the legislature kicks back, okay, the legislature particularly kicks back, then a, pre, a, a governor in the future – could basically say, okay, climate change is an existential threat. My primary role is to keep you safe. Right. Right. Has nothing to do with liberty. Okay. And so we are going to outlaw all eight-cylinder vehicles, turn them in. And no, we don't have to pay you anything. I mean, I arbitrarily can take because they arbitrarily decided which restaurants can stay open, which can't, you know, mask mandates and all these things. And look, I'm okay with that for a very specific, limited period of time, but if the people aren't represented, so I, I wrote an article on this uh, almost in last June or July. I mean, if it's an old law, it was passed 20 years ago. Um, that's arbitrary and not very solid by the state legislature. Okay, and g- gave the governor kind of just you know arbitrary power. Okay, so that that legislature didn't represent me. Okay, if it's very arbitrary in nature and goes against unalienable rights (laughs) and the primary role of government, then in order to give up those rights beyond a very temporary period of time would require that I be represented. I mean, that's why we fought a revolutionary war. Right. No represent no taxation without representation. So don't tell me I can't support my family because of one man's unilateral decision that this is what he's got to do to keep us safe. It's ridiculous. So we, we are going from an American mindset that made America who it is, that created men and women that have made us great, to a colonial mindset. We're going back to a colonial mindset that we want the British to take care of us. We want to be, uh, you know, we want our trade to be handled. We, want, we just want to be taken care of and we're willing to sell our inheritance for a bowl of pottage. And we're not worthy of that unless we change course <laughs> and recognize what happens. So that's kind of my goal is to try to preserve that America. And there are many Americans who still believe that, but we're losing it because people are afraid to speak out.
0: Well, and, it, and, and I mean, it's, in some ways it is the, the, the pandemic has been the perfect Set up for a power grab. You know, Ducey is one of the most conservative governors in the country, and yet there was an overreach. I mean, huge think overreach. States, think about the states where <laughs> they're not conservative and how bad that's been.
2: Huge um, overreach, but that tells you where we are.
0: Yeah. So. I mean,
2: it tells you where we are. I mean, look, you know, part of studying the Civil War, you read about nullification. You know, you learn about, you know, the states wanted to nullify federal law and, you know, John C. Calhoun's writings and Jefferson and Madison and and these kind of things. And, you know, is any law passed by the federal government legitimate or even by the governor and these kind of things? Well, look, this tells you how far away we are and where we're at today. Uh, Lincoln wrote on this, these kind of things. But if we think coming together and meeting in the middle – is by allowing men to compete in women's sports and think that's okay. I mean, there's some things we can really, you know, I can look at somebody as a rational human being and respect their opinion. You know, look, we need to have universal health care. I, I think that that is coercion, okay? any time. I am demanding a service of somebody else, <laughs> okay? So when somebody says, you know, an unalienable right is only unalienable if nobody else has to do anything for you. <laughs> it doesn't be, it's not in right. I mean, it, you could call it a perk or a subsidy or an entitlement, but it's not a right. right. C- Housing is not a right because that's slavery. If you can force somebody to do something for you, that is not a right, you know, but, but I can have an argument with somebody that, that is, in my opinion, uneducated or doesn't understand the proper role of government and say, OK, we can agree it's, it's not a right. You can say you want it, but, you know, or tax rates or these kind of things. But when you when you say, or OK, student
1: loans. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Right.
2: You know, you, you can see how other people can see this. But where are the men? Where are the women standing? up? I mean, there should be a national freaking outrage. Of, of, okay, it's okay to put this. I mean, if you want to base it on the science, guys, you're one or the other. Now, I know there's some anomalies and this kind of thing. But if we want to start, and that's not prejudice against transgenders. Look, if you want to have a totally separate sport, a transgender whatever, vazi as the French would say, go ahead. <laughs> okay? But when we're willing to swallow that because we're afraid of being canceled, because we're afraid of what somebody else is gonna do, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. And then we're talking about stand up. I mean, look, <laughs> you know, the COVID thing is really a litmus test on where we are for this country. I mean, think about the pilgrims that came over. Think about those who came to Jamestown. I mean, the pilgrims had 50% death rate in the first year. Jamestown had 80% 80 80, 80 to 90% in the first two years. Yeah. And yet more were willing to follow because the risk was worth the reward. Right, And yet we are willing <laughs> to throw it all away. And that's why I got in trouble. I wrote an article March 23rd of last year. I mean, this was two weeks after the pandemic. And I'm like, guys, slow down. I mean, and boy, I, I caught hell for that. Slow down, we overreacted on the Russia collusion stuff. You know, we overreacted on all these things, and you don't see this? You know, so it's kind of like freedom as our first principle is, I mean, it's not even in the top 10 with most people anymore, let alone at the top. Um, So it's disheartening in some sense, but perspectives can be changed pretty quickly when people see the light. So, George Washington said, it's a shame in our form of government. We must feel before we see. <laughs> and I think there's going to be a lot of feeling coming up here pretty yeah. soon.
1: Yeah. Well, I, well, think, I, I think also you made, you made a really good point about disenfranchisement and disenfranchising of the population one one sense and we've talked a little bit around legislation and 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 what the government does to disenfranchise and there's a there's a bill that was passed or it's making its way through congress i don't know if it's passed today or, or yesterday hr1
0: passed congress or the house yesterday the house yesterday the so
1: year. so hr1 would basically disenfranchise every state in the union from regulating and and having their own elections it would federalize everything and I think oh, yeah. to your point, that is when things begin to unravel. Now, I think a lot of what the legislature is doing right now, the federal legislature, is passing radical, radical legislation because they know it has no chance of doing anything in the Senate. And so that's so they can do those things. People yeah. they could say that well, we, I mean, we, but we we did it because well, we Well they can. want to appease their base and they want to flex their muscles. Yeah, we did we, we did it because we can. It's just like when the when the Republicans Passed the repeal of Obamacare seven yeah. six times. They knew when it was they, not going yeah, anywhere. Yeah, but then when they had the chance, then to when they had the they, chance, they yeah, but It could really happen. <laughs> so I think we're seeing a lot of that, but it, it's inspiring a lot of discussion. But but the but but it all goes back to what the beliefs are, right? Yes. And much of this is of the belief that the government, the federal government, can make better decisions than the right. states can make better decisions than the populace. That your rights don't matter. It's all about the government's right to do whatever it wants to impede upon you. And that's really what this is all.
2: about. Well, but, you know, and going
1: even back to the, you know, the, your discussion about transgender rights or whatever, that is the other extreme, which is your, your, your rights as, as a practicing, whatever faith that you practice mean nothing to what the government's rights are to tell you what, what to practice.
2: Well, and we, we get away—see, the, the only common ground—I mean, we look, we still have common ground, but you know, I, I'd really like to have the time to, to write the book, but the real answer is federalism. The real answer is— Well, H.R. You know,
1: 1 will test federalism. Right. If it is enacted into <laughs> law. You will see the courts, the le- state legislatures, every every bastion of federalism torn—either torn apart or brought together— in in success to push back well
2: look i mean if we could agree that different states can do different things i mean if you want abortion in one state not the other why should that why should that matter if you want to have uh look i know since the the bill of rights has been incorporated (laughs) into the states we could have a whole podcast just on that but you know um States, originally the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment, weren't did not apply to the states. You know, it was up to them. So if they – look, Massachusetts had a state religion until the 1830s, okay, well after the Bill of Rights was set. But, you know, if you want to have gay marriage in one state and not the other, if you want to, you know, do A, B, or C – and somebody a lot of people come up jeff you're a states rights guy they believed in slavery and these kind of things it's it doesn't have to do about states rights it has to do with balancing the power it has to do with spreading it you know horizontally uh, vertically you know with judicial executive legislative but also horizontally uh, so you have the federal the state you know the county and and local down to the even the hoa it's about spreading that power and enabling people to choose where they want to live with the people that, you know, they think the most of. And also being enfranchised, having the franchise, and thinking that you can make a difference in your HOA. You can make a difference in the school board. You can make a difference in your city or town. And I'll guarantee you, if you want to go see a state legislature, you'll be able to meet him or her. Eventually, you'll get in to talk and be able to do that. If you want that with your congressman, there's very small chance unless you have some ends. And if you want to try to do that with the senator – you know, to make real inroads in Washington, um, you know, good luck with that. So we feel less and less franchised and like we're able to. And so we're going down this rapid river, you know, and we used to have at least, you know, an oar in the water to steer a little bit. And now I think many people feel rudderless and, and really hopeless about where the destiny is. So I think somehow federalism is a way to get it back. Um, But we have to have judges that believe that. We have to have people that understand it. Um, One of the things, the results of going away from God into government is that we don't look to God and our fellow man and ourselves to solve our own problems. We look to government as Mm -hmm. Big Daddy. Um, And these are the wrong things that we should teach our children. You know, the change should really start with ourselves and go out. And instead, we have the reverse of that. We want the change from the top to go down. Right, right.
0: Yeah, it has to, I mean, and that goes back to that that speech by Reagan. It's going to happen at the kitchen table. Right. Um, and if it doesn't, it needs to be the neighbor or the friend or whatever. But
2: Well, and, and look, I just taught a whole homeschool group uh, before coming here. And one of the biggest problems we have out there is as adults, as parents, we're not teaching our kids to love our country. You know, the country we're raised in, America, we're lucky to be here, and it's not, just another team it's not like okay i'm on the yankees and you're on the braves or whatever it is no there is something special and exceptional with our country because of our ideals and you don't need to have any proof other than our history and what happened to the world after these history after our ideals were spread i mean thomas jefferson didn't want to be imperialistic he said the best thing we can export is our ideals and it changed the worlds. We see the death rates go uh, way down, longevity go up, wealth going up. So we know what freedom does. We have the proof of it. But, you know, you have things like the 1619 Project. You know, that is not just a different perspective, but it's wrong and lies. They are liars. Okay, they want to control the system. You know, it is proven fact that the founders did not rebel to perpetuate slavery. That is a lie. It's a known lie. I mean, you you look at the writings. As a matter of fact, every colony uh, in America at the time that signed the Declaration of Independence had slavery. And within 10 to 15 years, seven of those didn't, you know? And the other ones made grand efforts, including Thomas Jefferson and his uncle Richard Bland, to make inroads on, uh, you know, um, emancipating the slaves in Virginia, but they couldn't do it. And so he wrote, you know, you, you can't defend all the actions that's going to have to, we, we've done enough in this generation. You know, we pushed the ball as far as we could, and this is where we're at. That's going to have to be to another generation. Um, I'm grateful for what they did and we can say, well, why didn't you do more? Well, they it's, did a
0: lot well, and they set it's, us it's on really the It's
1: really easy to look back and, and with a 21st century mindset.
0: But but if you think about it, I mean, this is something I think about on occasion, is that the amount that they accomplished in the time frame that oh, they had incredible. is insane. Incredible. Yeah. It's amazing. And could you find 55 people in America today that could match the vision and intellect? No. I, mean, I don't,
2: I don't, think, I don't think, so. think so. Even with 320 no. million people.
1: You <laughs> I mean, know. That, just, that's why I always enjoy these discussions with you, Jeff, because you and I share, share that same passion for the founders, and, and that's... I always, whenever I read David McCullough or I read uh, some of these other books, I'm always, Founding Brothers, and, yeah. and I'm always thinking like, where are where are these people today? You know, we. You, I think you're absolutely right. You could not find. I mean, it was
0: a unique moment in in the history of our world um, that enabled us to uh have what we have today i
1: mean, I mean just, just just it's, it's an incredible uh, yeah.
2: god was a part of it oh, <laughs> you know in my no mind question. in in enabling this to happen
1: i mean just the debates and the coexistence of of someone like john adams thomas jefferson and the friendship and rivalry that they enjoyed right and even passing on the exact <laughs> same, same day <laughs> on july 4th <laughs> on July 4th, <laughs> you 50 years you, 50 today. you can't you <laughs> no. As Dave Sitton like to say, you can't make it up. No, or, or can't make it somebody up. Even if you like try. George
2: Washington, and what I equate to, I wrote an e an ebook a number of years ago, uh, four or five years ago, about you know what's going to happen um, if we start tearing down monuments. <laughs> okay, and this is four or five years ago, and I said, look, when you start tearing down the Confederate monuments, um, all the slave owners are coming next. And after that, and I'd said they're eventually getting to Lincoln, because if you look at some of Lincoln's comments, they are certainly racist, um, you know, and they were wrong. But, you know, he did a lot of good also. So, and I compare it kind of to sports players. I mean, look, if you look back at like Jesse Owens' Olympic uh, times, you know, 1940. Um or 36, 36 at the Olympics. I mean, he would get crushed by Hussein Bolt today. But we revere him because at the time he was great. Yeah. Now every so often, there is a timeless genius like Mozart, you know, that just stands the test of all times, or Christ, you know that just are st- you know, others. But most of the time, they're great in their era, okay? And then later, they might not be compared as great. We can't judge those of the past. They'll be responsible for the light and knowledge they had at the time. And I'm grateful I'm not to judge. But if they move the ball, ball forward in, a, in the direction that we needed to go, and most of the founders did, all, all of them that I know of. I mean, you know, they, they all had issues in their life. <laughs> And, uh, you know, in some ways that makes me feel better, you know, because we all have issues that we need to work on. But we need to judge him for the time. I'm sure, who was it, Ray Lewis, the great boxer back in the day. You know, Muhammad Ali would have laid him out in a second. And I'll bet you some of the boxers today would probably lay Muhammad Ali out, you know, because of the nutrition and the rest and the things that we have. Um, That's just the way it is. So we have to have some type of perspective and rational thought and we seem to be knee-jerk reacting. So one of the uh, mottos of my uh, nonprofit is Davy Crockett's Creed. And if our listeners have never read his autobiography, I think it's the greatest autobiography of all time because he's just like the guy who played him in the movies, you know, and he's just kind of fun-loving, but he is a tough human being. But he, he was also very humble and willing to learn And, you you know, in his writings, he talks about the Constitution and what he learned by being a congressman. But his main motto at the beginning is, make sure always you are correct, then go ahead. So it's the same mantra our moms told us, you know, think before you act. Don't be an idiot, you know, look both ways before you cross the street. Okay, and we're not doing that. We have these knee-jerk reactions, of what's portrayed on the news and then everything goes to flame. Yeah. Uh, We're not doing ourselves any favors
0: there. What, um, you know, there's clearly this is as divisive of a time as, as as it's been, at least in my lifetime. I was born in 1970. Um, what, and then, you know, obviously Democrats, Biden especially has been, Oh, you know, we want to have a, unity in the nation well they're not i don't think they're interested in unity they're interested in you know implementing their agenda no but Uh, is there is there something that history you could look back at history and say here's a way that we can try to patch this together again
2: well i think I think the simplest way,
0: and I think many
2: libertarians and even liberals, not leftists, but liberals. I mean, I have a lot of liberal friends, and I love them, and I love their ideas. Um, A lot of them are, you know, if you look at the uh, classical liberal versus maybe the modern-day liberal, and I'm not as as close to the ideals of the modern-day liberal, more of the classic liberal. But again, we can have rational rational discussions on how we want to get there because they want to have a better um, future for our children. They want to keep free. They understand some of the connections between liberty and opportunity. Um, In most of the case, they just think sometimes government is the solution. And sometimes it is. I mean, Nazi Germany had to be defeated, and it took the government to do it. You know, we had to unify and get it done. You know, we went to the moon and these kind of things. So... They have arguments, but I think it's clouded um, their judgment that, you know, the first principle is still liberty. And so I think the way to get to them is explain, look, if you want to do this and that in New York and Massachusetts, that's great. But let us live differently in Arizona, in Pennsylvania. You know, we can all choose differently. If we want universal health care here, we can do it. If we want to have a state income tax, let us educate our kids the way we want to educate. Is there more risk in that? Yes. Yes but the lion in the safari has more risk than the one in the zoo right you know i mean yes there's that's what liberty's about you know so we're not here to protect everybody from themselves or others forever you know there is some risk inherent with liberty and we understand that Um, but unless somehow we can catch a a vision to agree to disagree and let others live or no If we only have two choices, we're going to Maine or Florida, you know, and we're not arguing how to get to Virginia or D.C., then we're going to be fighting over the wheel. And, you know, and that's why, you know, I'm starting to reteach about nullification because, you know, nullification usually is a concept of, you know, the states intervene between unconstitutional state law. I mean, federal law onto the states. For instance, you know, when the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed in 1798 under the Adams administration, that's when the Kentucky resolutions and Virginia resolutions were written by Jefferson and Madison appropriately, basically saying if it's an unconstitutional law, the states don't have to adhere to it. And so basically, not getting into a big thing, but Adams said, look, if you, you know, critique our administration, we can come arrest you. Well, Virginia basically said, come and try it. Great. You guys come down here, we're going to throw you in jail, you know. And guess what? It worked. I mean, the other states didn't agree because they were more federalist oriented at the time, but it worked. But you know, in in nullification doesn't even have to be at the state level. What was the civil rights movement? It was individuals nullifying unjust, unconstitutional laws, saying, "No, I'm not sitting in the back of the bus." Okay, this is the way it's going to be. The ultimate sovereignty rests with the people. So. You know, we need brave governors to stand up and say, no, we're not going to allow transgenders to compete with our women's sports, and we're not going to let them in the locker rooms, and we're going to protect our women and girls. You know, I mean, and we're going to need – and if they defund the colleges, okay, get it on. Right. You know, I'm I'm a Thomas Paine guy. If there is to be trouble – let it happen in my day that our children may know peace. Okay. You know, what I'm worried about is this kicks, gets kicked down the road enough that the people who caused it aren't paying the price. I want it to come now. Yeah, you know, I,
0: I totally agree with that. It's, it, it, which also leads to something I would, that I think needs to be solved. If, and it's the problem of, that I see as a problem of people putting their fealty in a politician and right. not in the ideals. Right. I, I am, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what the Trump administration accomplished. Um, I was never a fan of Trump. I don't understand how it is that there are people who have such reverence for him <laughs> and not the ideals, of freedom, conservatism, the right. Republican Party, you need whatever the case may be, the institutions or the ideas, it's that they're totally loyal to him. I mean... Yeah,
2: there's I, a danger in that, and I've gotten in trouble coming out, and I'll give you a couple examples, <laughs> okay? Well, uh, but, oh, go ahead, Chris, and I'll No, talk. but
1: I, I just want to quickly comment on this because they don't understand, it either intuitively, intellectually, or reflexively, like where those ideas come from. They don't have a, a, either... Historical basis of understanding were those policies that he embraced, rightfully so. Low, t- less regulation, less taxation, making us more competitive globally. Rebuilding the military, you know. No, blah, those blah, policies blah. I mean, all, are awesome. A lot of the policies, but but also institutionally, who was implementing those policies? It wasn't Donald Trump. Right. Okay. It was a guy by the name of Mike Mulvaney. It was a guy by the name of Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence was staffing the administration. His office basically interviewed most of the people that currently serve on, on the federal judgeship. It was his. Yeah. People, people don't understand that. So like you, people would ask me, well, how do you support Donald Trump? And I would say, I don't really, I don't understand. I, I don't understand how we got here, to be honest with you. And I'm, I'm not a never-Trumper. I'm not a forever-Trumper. <laughs> but I was always a pro-Pencer. Because I always knew where the policies were coming from, intellectually, historically, and from from a conservative perspective. And then when when it all blew up on January 6th, I said, okay. Yeah, well, when when they're saying
0: hang Mike Pence, they're chanting hang Mike Pence in the Capitol. The the Mm -hmm. world has completely turned upside down. Because because those
1: people are, are putting their faith in a person, you're correct. And there should only be one person we put our faith in. Right. Well, but some and, and of it too was they don't understand. They don't understand really where where the success came from.
2: And and that's true. But I want to back up just a little in that, you know, nobody knows what to believe anymore. Yeah. Look, I think you know I think there was fraud in the election, but I think it was in open sight. I mean, I think the lowering of standards and the heightened ability to cheat. You know, ballot harvesting coming in. You know, right. who knows how many of those? Was it enough to swing the election? Maybe so. And so when, when the media has destroyed their own credibility, because I mean, how long did we hear about Russia collusion? I mean, I read the entire Mueller report, okay, because I didn't want anybody telling me, oh, they didn't. no, I read every page, okay? I've got to just highlight it. And early on in that investigation, early, like within the first six months, There's admitted. I mean, in there it was like the Mueller report says, "Hey, we couldn't find anybody in the Russian, uh, you know, government that had any connections with Trump. They didn't even know how to get in touch with them." It's like, okay, does that tell you anything? And they kept perpetuating this falsehood. Okay, it's just ridiculous. So they have destroyed their credibility, especially with conservatives, our patriots. And so when they come out and say, "Believe us, do these, you know, do this." No, especially with all the anomalies that Mm happened. Not only did the COVID thing get taken advantage of, you know, but it was it it took advantage of state laws. And then recently, because of the fact the Supreme Court didn't take, you know, um, the case coming out of Pennsylvania is also ridiculous. That makes people, you know, Clarence Thomas, you know, said something about that and said, look, you know, it's crazy we're not doing this because it just opens up future opportunities for this instead of getting this behind us. So we're, we're kind of losing our credibility there. Now, I get in trouble with both sides because, like, the bump stock issue when that came out. Most people are like, who cares, no big deal. Say, no, it's a frickin' big deal. It's a big deal, and it's unconstitutional what the Trump administration did. So I will tout, for instance... You know, when he unilaterally signed an executive order to keep people out of certain countries, hey, that's constitutional. That's under the McCarran Act, 1952, very clear. Other presidents did it, and all of a sudden we see injunctions out of these circuit courts. It's like, give me a break, okay? That's wrong. But, and, and so wrote an article on that. You know, it's just people don't understand this, that, and the other. But all of a sudden we get to the bump stock where something is legal one day. And then by fiat the next day, all of a sudden, it's illegal, and you're a felon if you keep it. And guess what? You're not paid if you turn it in or destroy it. Okay, that's called a taking. If it's that important to we the people, we should pay for it. Okay? Because, again, I go back to the suburban thing. If, if uh, all of a sudden, climate change is an existential threat, and you've got a suburban, turn it in, or you're a felon. And we just don't think, we, you know, back in the days of, uh, you know, Germany, it was, okay, they're coming after me today, or you today, as long as they're not coming after me, I'm good with that one. Right. But they're coming after all of us. And uh, before, you know, it's too late, we need to start standing up and uh, calling it out. Yes, there's still a First Amendment. We shouldn't be afraid to speak our minds. If enough people get together and, and stick up for what's right, then there can be some kickback here. And that's what needs to happen.
1: How much of these discussions? I want to just pivot for a little bit, uh, in the interest of time. But yeah, you know, you you, you spend a lot of time in the. We talked on this this earlier. We, you spent a lot of time in the water.
2: I do. I still spend. And, a lot. <laughs> and you spent a lot of
1: time in the water with some of the greatest, you know, fighting men that the world has ever known. How much of your time in that water is spent? talking about some of this
2: <laughs> well
1: and teaching, you know, <laughs> teaching them maybe a little bit but you're passionate about not just on the surface. yeah
2: with side. friends just on the side um you know um i have a really good friend jimmy you know when i you know after 9 11 and i was sad and depressed like i talked about i said what can i do you know as a as a citizen and this set me on a path and he said well if i get killed take care of my family And I was like, I'm not rich. You know, how am I going to do that? And he said, well, look, man, you asked the question. (laughs) You know, he said, you asked the question. So I looked into, is there a foundation that helps them? And there was a SEAL veterans, I mean, not SEAL veteran. There was a Navy SEAL Foundation at the time, the Naval Special Warfare Foundation. And so we did the first event for them in Tucson back in the day. And the second event, the third event back in 2004, five and six event in San Diego, and we raised them really good money at the time. Um, and, uh, and then it went to New York and they started making real money, <laughs> you know, doing that thing. But th- that kind of affected, you know, I, if these guys are out there, we ought to do what we can to help them. And Dave said and got involved in those things and, and, and we it was really meaningful. But the second thing he said almost impacted me even more. He said, well, that and then one other thing. I was like, yeah, he just said, do your best. What do you mean about that? He goes, you figure it out. <laughs> you know, he's said, not, not a lot of patience with me. So I was thinking about what he meant by that. And uh, it, it kind of comes down to the end of Saving Private Ryan where the captain gets shot and killed on the bridge. You know, and the guys are like – and the one guy lives, the one, you know, son of that daughter that lost all the – or the mom who lost all the other sons. And he's like, earn it. So basically he was saying, look, if I'm risking my life overseas <laughs> to protect you here, don't waste it eating Cheetos on the couch watching Gilligan Island reruns, okay? Mm-hmm. Make something of yourself. And so, you know, we have the opportunity to grow or not. And uh, so I've, I've learned that from, from him. And every day just try to uh, live a life worthy of their sacrifice, of Christ's sacrifice, you know, of those who came before us, my dad's sacrifice, my mom, um, that we've gotta make something of ourselves. Otherwise, we squander our inheritance. Um, so those guys have taught me a ton. Again, I'm, I'm not a SEAL, um, but there's some, I mean, I could tell you story after story, and I'll tell you one quick one. <laughs> um, so I'm training a, a particular group and we're going for a four-mile swim right off the beach. And so we're not even going out far. We're just along the beach. So we do the first two miles really hard. And then we do a debrief, you know, because we're doing combat side stroke. Um, So the combat side stroke they use now, I developed, you know, in 1997, a long time ago. That's what we teach. And I've got videos on that and everything else. Um, But we went up to the beach to talk. And we started to talk. And uh, the last guy came in and was throwing up, I mean, crawled onto the beach. He got really seasick. And I mean, he was just laying face down in the sand, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I went up to him and said, look, you know, if you wanna walk back or anything, and he's like, look, man, I'd rather be dead than walk back and not not finish this, but I'm okay. But while we were there on the other side of the berm, you couldn't see any or anything. But all of a sudden at eight o'clock on most of these bases, the national anthem plays. So you could hear it faintly in the background. And 30 or 40 guys all of a sudden come to attention and face the berm. And there's nobody, you know, that's going to call them out if they don't. They do it every day. There's an ocean background in the back. But all of a sudden, everybody stops. And they see this guy laying on the sand. And so two guys go over there, pick him up. So I'm thinking, man. I'm tearing up seeing us because the reverence they had for the national anthem to pick that guy up. No, you know, nobody's watching. None of the commanding officers. It's me with these men and they still do it. So as soon as the national anthem ended though, what happens? (laughs) They (laughs) they just drop them back down in the sand. But you know, that moved me. It was like, man, do we still believe? Hell yes. There's some men who still believe, you know? And I see what that national anthem represents, and this is the difference. You know, to me, it stands for the ideals that we want to be or become. That's what the flag represents. And the progress we've made. Yeah. Okay. Um, To others that want to rewrite history, and it's not all good, but, but disparage the progress we've had and have a fixed versus a growth mindset, you know, that if you've done something, anything wrong in your wor- your life, you're doomed to, you know, whatever. Um, you know, there's the difference there. So I was moved by that. I've been moved by a lot of things uh, that these guys have done and just being able to work with them over the years. I'm lucky to still do it.
1: Well, well
0: we're lucky to have you. Yeah, we absolutely <laughs> are.
1: And thank you so much for just taking time out of your day and you bet and for doing My all the work that you're doing and and uh, appreciate your friendship, appreciate who you are for this country and and for our state and and for our community. Thanks for your support. Yeah. Well I think all we're right. gonna have to set up a
0: series with Jeff of like, okay, this is topic one and I mean we had so many jumping off points. We didn't cover a fraction of what we could have today. So yeah, but I am mean, happy to do it. We need to dive yeah. into your brain a little bit more. But appreciate you having me, gentlemen. Yeah, we'll have you on a couple more times for sure. Sounds good.
2: God bless you. Appreciate it. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'm going to book back to Tucson. My plane leaves at five in the morning tomorrow. So I got to get prepared for
0: that.